Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. Maybe you don't need translation anymore. Actually, there are people who would argue he needs a lot of explaining, but not a lot of translation. <laughs> you pretty yeah. much know what yeah, he's yeah, talking about. Yeah, you kind of know what he's saying. <laughs> This is the problem for a lot of people. Right. <laughs> understand them all too well. Right. <laughs> we take an honest look at the current administration, and we talk about the existential threats to America, thanks to the American Strategy Group, which supports this show. Joining me today is our good friend, Joel Farkas. He's a director of the American Strategy Group. And there's something very interesting on the November ballot in California that we'll discuss. You know, Joel is the guy who is trying to break through California dreaming and wake him up. Right. And it's amazing how many listeners email in about California. I mean, Joel's hit something there. Really? Well, let's be sure to tell him. You got it. Also, some interesting developments with global climate policies. You know, the president spoke on 60 Minutes about climate change. We'll also speak with Ryan Williams' first-time appearance on this podcast. He's the president at the Claremont Institute, well-known smart conservative think tank in California. He's got a great piece called Decisive Political Victory is the Only Way to End This Civil Cold War. He'll share his thoughts. So before we go to uh, our guests, let me tell you something. I got an email from an old, old friend, guy I worked with, oh my gosh, 40 years ago. Okay. And he said that he was with a friend and they were talking and they had a couple of beers. This was not Brett Kavanaugh. This was somebody else drinks beer. And um, somebody else. <laughs> the guy said, you know, so one of my favorite quotations in this guy said, quotation, and my buddy said, who said that? And his friend said, I don't know, some guy back in the 80s, I think he maybe worked for Reagan. Okay. And my friend Chuck said, oh, I think I know who that is because I think I remember that quote. And you know what the quote was? I totally forgot. Yeah, what was that? The guy said, it's like sums up life. Some days you need Mother Teresa. Some days you need Dirty Harry. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, no, that's really good. That's really good. See, I used to be smart, you know? No, no, oh, come, come on, on Still man. are. Come on. Well, we'll see. Well, <laughs> You're getting it done. It's funny, though. A friend of mine who worked for me is hearing this from somebody else who had remembered the quote for like 35 <laughs> years. Unbelievable. Okay, let's go to, uh, let's go talk to Joel. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Joel Farkas joins us now. He's director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Joel, how are you? Good, Bill. How are you? I'm okay. What's How do you feel? Well, I am better than the Denver Broncos. Oh, Joel. <laughs> Don't. Are you a Broncos fan? Really? Uh, yes. I, I am. I, I'm, I'm a fan. I'll remain a fan, but it's 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 tough right now. Hey, were you a fan in the golden days? The golden days, the not so golden days, the okay. platinum days, all the days. Okay, okay. Because I was a huge Denver fan, because I had a guy at the Department of Education who'd been a right tackle for Denver, a guy named Sam Brunelli, and. Um, Anyway, I don't know why I just got engaged with them. But oh, I got a Denver Broncos story for you. I was um, Tell me. I was when I was during the Reagan administration. I was voted quarterback of the year, quarterback of government. Really? And so I went to the quarterback club dinner, and you know who was there? All quarterbacks. Wow. And I mean, it was one of the most impressive. I was excited. You know, ambassadors don't thrill me, but, you know, quarterbacks. So I spotted. Probably part of the uh, 1983 great quarterback class from college. It's probably where you came from. Elway was class of 83? 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And many others. All right. Many well, others. it was really good. So I spotted Elway and I went up to him because I was thrilled to meet him. And um, he was there with his wife, Janet. And as you know, he's a Stanford graduate, right? <laughs> yes, that's true. Oh, okay. Oh, you're laughing. Well, is, you'll get is, the joke then. <laughs> so I, I, I talked to him and we talked football and I said, Hey, I got to ask you something else. You went to Stanford, right? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, I was just, I was just out there having a debate with your president about getting rid of the course on Western civilization. And I said it was evaluated as one of the best courses by the undergraduates. And and now the president, a guy named Kennedy, is getting rid of that course. Uh, I said, you know, it's apparently a great course. Every freshman has to take it. I said, what did you think of the course? Well, Joel, it was the wrong question to ask him. He said, <laughs> he, he, he turned to Janet and he said, did I take that course? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, uh, it's a, in his defense, I'm surprised Stanford would even have a course on Western civilization. Well, they this, believe in it? well, they got rid of it. They got rid of it. Anyway, but she said, yes, Janet Elway said, yes, John, and you got a B minus. He said, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Very good. He's, he's an extremely smart smart man. I know. Very smart. He, he was just acting jockish, <laughs> you know, but the, yeah. the debate, yeah. the debate, the reason I went out there, I was secretary of education and they occupied the president's office and all this, blah, blah, blah. And Jesse Jackson went out and led a demonstration. I'll never forget. And he said, Hey, Hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. And they asked me, as Secretary of Education, what I thought of that. I said, well, it rhymes, but I don't find the argument persuasive. (laughs) (laughs) So so the only way you make an argument, apparently, is to rhyme. That's it. That's right. That's right. It's all you got to know. That's right. You got to know how to... How to make things rhyme. That's right. Let's go. Where are we Everything going? Everything rhymes with go. Everything rhymes with go, so that's yeah, easy. That's right. I could probably do that. Let's go to work, our other work. Um, boy, you got some great stuff, and I want to be sure we get it in in this 20, 25 minutes. Let's talk, Joel, about uh, energy and resources and climate change. As we are talking, we just, uh, you and I both saw the 60 Minutes interview with our president, uh, and this topic of climate change came up. How do you think the president did? by the way. The president was direct, informed. I know that's uh, probably a, the media doesn't like to hear that, but he was direct, informed. He was uh, uh, succinct, and uh, he was very confident that his his policies and his beliefs and his pursuits, they're working, and he's going to continue them. I, I have tremendous confidence in listening to him with such conviction. I was very, very pleased, very pleased to hear him. He's getting a lot of stuff done. He really is. I read an article. We will put a link up, Claude, in New York Magazine. Make sure we send that to Joel uh, by Andrew Sullivan, used to be the editor of the New Republic, liberal guy, in which he said, it's a kind of, you got to give this devil his due. He's done a lot of stuff. And he said, and I got to tell you, this is the stuff he'd promised to do. And he's doing it. I think maybe that's a lot where a lot of criticism comes from. Uh, most people, most people whose uh, horse doesn't win the race, uh, they're hoping that they have gridlock. Uh, that's the best that they can hope for. There's no gridlock to uh, President Trump. He's he's uh, succeeding in on, on many, many different fronts. Let's talk about climate change. And you sent some amazing facts to me. I want to fill the audience in. Tell us about the debate and why it is so kind of misguided off base and missing some very important facts. 
In the last week or so, two pieces of uh, information came out. One is the UN uh, published a report, this seminal report in their word, in their ideas, ideas of, of climate change. It was it was requested a couple of years ago at the, at the Paris Climate Accord meetings. 2016. It just came out, and it basically said, this report basically said, we have a crisis, we have 12 years to do something, and if we don't do something, there'll be catastrophic problems. Um, Poverty, climate poverty will be basically where the world is headed. The other thing that just happened a week ago is two fellows, uh, two American economists just won the Nobel Peace Prize for economics. Um, They're studying this focus of research, climate change. And many of the people who were uh, enjoying the victors of the Nobel Peace Prize were saying, this is the world's putting a thumb in the eye of President Trump, because President Trump is singularly the, the worst leader as it pertains to climate, and he's probably the sole becoming now the sole contributor to the disaster of climate. And whenever uh, one of the administration officials, whether it's uh, Larry Kudlow or maybe Senator Marco Rubio or people like that, they're asked about, what do you think of climate change? Not only what, what do you think of climate change, what will you tell your children about climate change if you don't do something today? And their answers, I wish, were, are insufficient to me because it becomes a defensive answer. Well, we have to look at it. We have to measure it. We have to consider it. We don't know who causes it. Well, actually, we might not know who causes climate change, but we know where CO2 emissions are coming from. They're coming from China. They're not coming from the United States. President Trump is not increasing and decimating the world. The European Union's not doing that. India and China and Southeast Asia are singularly the largest and almost the only contributors to increase fossil fuels in the world. So what I would tell my children is, if you want to do something about CO2 emissions, don't go to Edmonton, Canada. Don't go to North Dakota. Don't go to San Francisco or Portland. Go to Beijing, the largest in the last 17 years. 17 years straight, China has led the world in increased fossil fuel consumption. China uses coal. Their coal consumption and production is almost what the entire rest of the world consumes and produces. Really? Really? Their natural gas consumption, their natural gas consumption is skyrocketing. Their LNG consumption, liquefied natural gas, has gone up 17% in the last year. In the next decade, it will almost double. So President Trump is not the cause of CO2 emissions. Let me interrupt. Is it true that since he took office, uh, I just want to spin out a little more what you said earlier, that it has not increased? It has not increased. The European Union in the last uh, several years, we've had, and the United States, have basically had almost negligible or unmeasurable uh, increases or decreases in CO2 emissions. And we've had growth. That's in, in addition to the fact that these economies have growth. But we are not emitting more CO2 emissions. Do you happen to know, as a percentage, as an X, uh, what China's emissions are compared to ours? Is it two X? South Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is about forty-two to forty-five percent of the world's. So that's India and China and all the other countries. About forty-two to forty-five percent of the world's uh, energy consumption. The United States is about twenty percent. The coal usage of China, the second largest coal user, we hear about President Trump encouraging coal. The second largest user of coal in the world is America, but China uses four times the amount of coal that the United States does. 
Wow. Okay. Is it true, Joel, that in this UN report, which got tons of publicity uh, on mainstream press, because it was, I guess, was it explicitly, I didn't read it, was it explicitly slamming President Trump? Uh, Every comment. It was was inference that U.S., the the way it was reported was, here we have this new report, and the United States pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords. Basically, it was the headline. Got it. And and because of the United States pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords, the ability to achieve these goals are are withheld. Now, what are the goals? The goals are by in the next uh, in the next twenty five years or so to reduce um, fossil fuel uh, consumption by forty five percent. Reduce it worldwide by forty five percent. That's just patently ridiculously absurd. When Fossil fuel consumption has increased year by year over the last decade, and, and the entire increase is India, China, and Southeast Asia. There is no possible way to reduce fossil fuel consumption when those those countries are dramatically increasing. And the populations, you know, the United States yeah. is 340 million people. Each one of those countries has 1.2 to 1.4 billion people. Yeah. The UN and the report... And the reports they put out, and the um, and the academics who uh, win the prizes for it. And this has been going on for for a long time. There's a there's a a, a fellow by by the name of uh, I think it's Otmar Edenhofer. I think is his name. Who is no one's ever heard of him, but he used to run the uh, climate group in Europe going after climate change. And he was one of the authors of a report that was issued about ten years ago. That report won a Nobel Prize for its work on climate. And he's really said it best for those who want to understand what is really going on with the debate. He said, one has to be clear, and this is a quote, we are effectively redistributing world wealth through climate policy. One has to free oneself from the illusion that international climate policy is environmental policy. That has almost nothing to do with environmental policy. It is a redistribution of wealth. And when you have... And that's what we're witnessing. Get rid of it in the EU and the United States. Allow India and China and Southeast Asia to use as much as they want. That's what's that's what really is going on. Wanna, Donald Trump did not create uh, CO2 emissions. I want to underscore, I'm just going through these notes you sent me. Thank you for your preparation for these discussions. Instead of whose fault it is, look at China as the 17th straight year leader in increased fossil fuel consumption. Do I understand correctly, Joel, that this UN report actually was positive about China? Oh, (laughs) one of the authors of the report is a Chinese um, uh, climate uh, expert. Ah. And uh, he was was saying this came out at a really, this, this report came out a really good time. I'm kind of paraphrasing these words because the Chinese government is now looking at their their plans till 2050, and their plans are to increase renewable energy supplies. And this is a really good opportunity for the Chinese government to to hear the people and see what's going on and be a part of the solution. And the report touts that China is one of the fastest growing countries for renewable energy supplies. Well, it's, 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 it's almost laughable because China, as I mentioned earlier, is the world's largest consumer and producer of coal. And when you, when you look at energy supplies, you look at the mix of different types, renewables, gas, coal, oil, and the like. In the last 20 plus years, 20 to 25 years, 
the, the worldwide mix of coal versus other fuels has not changed. It has been basically 38% of all energy consumption worldwide in the last 20 to 25 years. And that is with the United States and, 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 and other places reducing the coal use. Why has it stayed the same? China, 60% of China's uh, power grid is fueled by coal. So it's a propaganda piece. Why, why have ours stayed the same? <clears throat> is anything good to be said about legislation, EPA? Did we do some things right? Um, how come we haven't increased? Have we paid? I mean, we obviously are we paying, to paying more care to the environment than the Chinese are. Exponentially more. Yeah. We've 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 um we've changed because we've had better technology. We've had a we we have reduced the use of coal in our power grid. We have cleaner burning uh, fuels, um, but mainly natural gas. I mean, singularly, the easiest answer to that to that question is the use of natural gas has both liquefied as well as the natural gas itself has reduced all of the power grids. Uh, emissions substantially. Some of the problems around the world are when countries who had a lot of nuclear, when they're reducing their nuclear usage, power usage to, to natural gas, they actually increase because nuclear doesn't have CO2 emissions. But it has other issues with it. But the United States, the main reason is because of our use of natural gas. But I think the most important thing that um, is missed in the debate and missed in the, in the conservatives' defense of do you believe in climate change? If not, you're amoral or immoral. Or don't you understand fossil fuels are a poison? And don't you understand any decent person would, you know, would understand that climate change is important? Well, I am not trying to take the position that I'm immoral or indecent or don't understand, you know, pollution and, and, and the like. The emitter is Southeast Asia. The biggest emitter in Southeast Asia is China. And there is not going to be any policy of any sort that will reduce fossil fuel consumption without dealing with China's use and India's use. The fossil fuel consumption in the world today exceeds 80% still. More than 80% of all energy is powered by fossil fuels. And will continue to be. And will continue to be. Unless somebody marches into Beijing or, 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 or India and says, I want you to cease and desist. I want protests. I want, I want to get the protesters from Portland out to those countries and stand up there and chain themselves to, to, a, to a rig, chain themselves to something, and, and, or, or, or threaten to, 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 to throw paint on and knock down the, uh, the entry walls to the Chinese government. Go do it. Try it. See how it works. This is uh, amazing. Uh, do you recall, uh, I've been watching the president on China. He's hit him pretty hard on the trade stuff, you know, and that's been the emphasis. Has he actually brought this up, do you recall? Um, he is bringing it up uh, in trade. It is trade. Everything that he is doing uh, with trade uh, is based on, on what we're talking about with energy. Okay. Um, without energy, China has no, no trade and no economy. You, okay. cannot, you cannot possibly produce any good or service without it, without increasing energy supplies. So, um, okay. that is, that is exactly president Trump understands this, whether he brings it up overtly or specifically, I, I don't know, but he definitely understands, uh, the, the Achilles heel, which isn't very few, but the Achilles heel of the Chinese economy is energy. Okay. I want to shift gears. Uh, by the way, our next guest, it just occurred to me is someone, you know, Ryan Williams. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. First time on the on the podcast. 
So oh, that'll be great. Uh, he's that'll got a he's great. got a great voice. He had a great little essay. I don't know if you saw it. He said the only way out of our conflicts right now is a decisive political victory for one side or the other. Very interesting. I want to want to talk to him about that. I want to hear more about that. You bet. Let's not talk about communication with China anymore and pressure on China. Let's talk about communication with another nation or place regarded as foreign by a lot of people, the state of California. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean that. I love California. What is the latest? I have a headline here, and I think you wrote it. It says in bold letters, idiotic approach to housing. <laughs> Please fill in the blank. Um, oh, California, California, California. We know that they have a severe, the rest of the country actually knows California has a severe housing crisis. California just figured it out. They just, my God, people are leaving the state. Middle class workers are leaving. Uh, they have the highest poverty rate. They have the highest homelessness rate in the country. And they've just figured out that they have a housing crisis. And now they're thinking about what to do about this housing crisis. So um, there's a wonderful university that I attended, UCLA. Oh, yeah. I uh, came out with a <laughs> Bad football team, good university. Great golf team. I knew we were there. Oh, they were phenomenal. Thank God. Thank God I didn't play much, but uh, that's why they were good. But they came out with a white paper, all the experts, the economics department, the economic geographers and, and the like, and they said, we need to look at the history of California to determine what to do about our housing crisis. Well, the housing crisis in California is I want to save everybody from reading the, uh, the white paper and the, and the debate. It's very simple. The state of California doesn't build hardly any single-family detached homes. In the last decade, 10 years in a row, somewhere between fifty to 55,000 homes per year were built in the state of California. More than two-thirds of the communities on the coast have some sort of restriction on new development. The Lack of housing combined with a couple of other things, the, the pushing out of the aerospace manufacturing industry and other manufacturing industries has gotten rid of very good, high-paying, middle-class jobs. So you add the decimation of the manufacturing sector, and let's throw one more thing onto it, the mass population shift of immigrants to the state who are have less education, less skills, and have lower wages. Population increase, elimination of middle-class jobs, failure to build new housing. That is the absolute perfect storm to create a housing crisis and poverty and homelessness. Why? The people that are moving in have no new places to live, and they don't have very good jobs, and they don't have high wages. And that is why California has one of the, the worst housing crises in the United States. Reputable researchers will basically say the following. Almost every poor person in California cannot afford to rent a house, cannot afford to rent a place. About half of the middle class people in California cannot afford to rent a place. About 25% of the population, when you include housing, is in poverty in the state of California. That's your crisis. So the, so the solution is to have statewide rent control? That apparently is the solution. Not apparently. There's an initiative on the ballot in this November, about three weeks. 
in the state of California to to repeal laws which impaired or impeded rent control, and that will allow the state and the cities and the, and the, and the counties to impose rent control. And that is the primary solution that the state is looking at. All right, I'm slow is- on this. I'm slow on this. I'm not an economics minded. I told you I took a course in college. I got a D. We read Paul Samuelson's Western book. Civilization. No, that wasn't Western <laughs> Civilization. It was economics. <laughs> Western Civ. I did better. But I didn't understand it. Well, I, I, I guess intuitively, I mean, so prima facie, I mean to say. You would think that rent, you could keep rents from going up if you control them. Well, you can, if you control them, by definition, rents don't go up. But what else happens? Or what else does not happen? Do you add any more houses? No. Uh, do people come in and build more when they know that their, that the, the rents are, 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 are constrained? Uh, uh, no. Uh. There, there, the one time, the one time that California looks back and says rent control was helpful to the state was during the 1940s, during the war years, when um, a lot of people moved to California to work in the uh, defense industries. And there was, again, another mass population shift of hundreds of thousands of people, and there was no housing. There wasn't housing there to catch up to this mass migration. Well, that allowed people to move there and afford rents, but what also happened was a lot of housing got built. So there is a moment in time when rent control can assist if it's com- if the companion to that is build more housing. I see. When the aerospace com- companies left California, they had these big pieces of property in the middle of cities in the area there. And what did the what did the, the mayors and the council people do? They said, "Oh, this is great. We're going to turn this into retail shopping and." coffee shops and our innovative areas. That's what they did with that. They didn't create more housing. As a matter of fact, when people, when, when people uh, advocates who wanted more affordable housing would say, what about people being able to live in your community? And then mayor, one mayor in Torrance, I think, said, well, look, they have, people have a right to live in the state. They just don't have a right to live in our zip code. Well, that's what, <laughs> there's yeah. no interest yeah. for people to build affordable, reasonably, reasonably priced housing in the state of California. Yeah, I see. But just that's just dumb, isn't it? I mean, you had it also had, remind me, uh, as a comparative number, or maybe there wasn't a number, but a comparison of the whole state of California as compared to the cities of Dallas and Houston. <laughs> Dallas and Houston combined build more than 50,000 homes per year, two cities in Texas. They build more homes per year than the entire state of California. Man. Man, but and, they, and Texas has the number one economy in the country. And do they have rent control statewide? No, no, yeah, they, it's not free. They have uh, they control it by building enough supplies so people could afford it. Oh yeah, get, and people actually get to people don't even have to rent in Dallas and Houston. They can actually buy a home, buy a home, and pay a mortgage, which is much cheaper than the rent they pay in California. Well, that's well. I keep saying wow because this is wow. I mean, it's the only thing you can say. It's amazing. How do they keep getting it so wrong so often? You'd think by, you know, dumb luck you'd get it right once in a while out there. Well, you know, um we know what it looks like when one party controls a state. It yeah. looks like California. Uh, they, they have the sup- almost a super majority in the state legislature. Well, well, wait, a minute. Minute. wait a minute. I'm going to interrupt you there. One party. No, not one party. That party. Because it's a one-party state in <laughs> Texas, but it's a different party. You're right. 
<laughs> I, I misspoke that party. We know what it looks like. It's like the commercial on TV now where the guy is supposed to go to apartment number six, but the uh, apartment number nine, but the thing is hooked on the door and it swings down. And so he goes to the wrong apartment, number six, instead of number nine. It's a fabulous party. And then he goes, he gets thrown out and he goes to nine. That's a really boring party and says, you know, I'm glad I got it wrong. But there's a there's a party that's good for growth and one that's not so good. You and I have talked about that before. There, no, there, you know, the, the elected officials in the state of California think about two topics, climate and immigration. You learn the talking points on those two topics. You can run for, uh, for office, state and federal office in California. Amazing. I don't even know that they jobs is a is a I think it's one syllable, isn't it? I, I guess it's too complicated of a word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jobs, jobs, jobs. But but one of the things I, I really think is just critically important that, that President Trump is paying attention to as it pertains to his his major theme of jobs and immigration. So many people argue that immigration indiscriminately is good and helpful and has no harm. And we know in California that regardless of your position on immigration, we know in California that that statement is untrue. You yeah. absolutely can measure the harm in terms of housing and affordability and wages and, and access to jobs. We know what it looks like in California, and it cre- has created the number one homelessness and poverty rate in the United States. That's we a great that. example. That's a great example. Uh, I mean, uh, there's obviously the first argument, which is a nation has a right to have sovereign, be sovereign and have borders. But it's a test case, as California is for so many things. And as we use it on this podcast, usually with you, to talk about what works and what doesn't, crucial experiments. And here we see the real consequences of unlimited immigration, uninhibited immigration. And we get into income inequality. About 30 percent of the, the billionaires in the United States live in California. You have extraordinarily wealthy people, extraordinarily poor people, and manufacturing jobs and the middle class not only are leaving, they have left. There was an op-ed a week or so ago in the uh, L.A. Times from, a, from a, an editor of a local paper. He, he, he called the people leaving California because of the traffic and housing crisis and issues. He says, you guys are California quitters. You should Quitter. stay here and be part of the solution. You're, you're a quitter. Well, I was kind of curious if, if people leaving the state because it's untenable are quitters, then why have, how come the people leaving a foreign country are not quitters? <laughs> just curious. <laughs> great, great. Do you have any idea? I mean, it's a bad deal for immigrants. Let's just talk about legal immigrants. It's a bad deal. Do you have any idea whether the number of people, a percentage of, of, of legal immigrants who go to California and return home, is compared to the number of legal immigrants who go to Texas and return home? That's a very good question. I don't know. Maybe we can find out. Let me get my crack research team. Not my research team on crack, my crack research team. <laughs> my suspicion is the ones who go to Texas probably have an easier time of it. Well, you know, first of all, I think one piece of evidence is they do is they become Republicans. And you, you probably don't become Republican unless you sort of want to protect something that you've got. You know, <laughs> you know we, we uh, a lot of times these, these arguments that President Trump uses, it, it talks about Venezuela, the decimation of that economy. And uh, it's, uh, I'm trying to make a connection here. But what just also happened in the last month or so is 
back to China and climate and the like. China just came in and, and, and Venezuela can't produce their, their heavy crudes very well anymore. So they went over to Canada and they've now just purchased a massive amount of the heavy crude in Alberta, Canada. And but what's interesting is that the price they paid, oil is currently selling for about 70 some dollars a barrel. The price Canada paid, excuse me, China paid Canada was $25 a barrel. $50 discount. And, you know, Alberta, because of these, these crazy policies of the Trudeau government, is, is, is being guessed. Their economy is just being yeah. decimated and rolled over Goodness. By, Goodness. by others. Joel, thank you. Always good to talk to you, Bill. We're going to send you some of these emails. You stimulate a lot of discussion. Love to read them. They're enjoyable. Well, it's great. Thank you so much, Joel. Appreciate it. Now we're going to go talk to Ryan Williams. We'll say hello for you. Please do. Please do. Thank you, Joel. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now, Ryan Williams, president at the Claremont Institute. Are you in California at the moment? I am. I am. Well, I don't know if you want to get defensive about it, but man, Joel was just... California has permitted 50,000 single-family homes per year in the last years, last decade. Dallas and Houston build more homes than the entire state of California. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Uh, Amelia and I have been tentatively looking to buy a house, and uh, you can tell by the prices that the supply is a little restricted. <laughs> uh, yeah. 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 So a lot of very rich people, right? Right. Which is good for the Claremont Institute, I hope. Yeah, yeah. For some of them, Brian's old line. Brian's old line was: "California is a great place to be if you're retired or poor, yeah. <laughs> or or rich, of course. But it's tough if you're in the middle. In class. the middle, yeah, yeah, yeah." Ryan, I want to talk about your essay. I read it, man. I said to Claude, "Let's get let's get Ryan Williams on." Decisive political victory is the only way to end this cold civil war. We've got about fifteen or twenty minutes. Tell us what prompted you to write this. What was the trigger? writing this essay, and then we'll get into the body of it. Well, it was, you know, I, I had observed, um, you know, we had a lot of friends who were of the Never Trump camp or the tepidly uh, supportive Trump camp, and I had some anecdotal evidence across social media and elsewhere that uh, this whole Kavanaugh event had really been a wake-up call for some folks. Uh, not necessarily that they were suddenly huge fans of the president, but rather that uh, they suddenly saw the stakes, and uh, that that's what sparked me to write it. But I wanted to offer a little bit of... Um, sort of historical and philosophical context for what's at stake yeah, in, what's with at the stake, court for please. the Democrats. Yeah. I talked about two main factors, um, the living constitutionalism of, of the Democratic Party, which which is to say uh, they judge constitutionality by evolving standards basically set by judges, reading what they think the times demand and what the progress, progress of society demands, ra- rather than having a fixed standard in the Constitution uh, and, and amending it. Uh, that's their living constitutionalism as opposed to how the Republicans, by and large, approach uh, the court and jurisprudence. And then their legal realism, which it's it's an academic term, but it basically it was a movement that uh, started at the turn of the 20th century and, and gathered steam. But it, the argument was that uh, judges aren't doing anything special oh, when they're judging. They, they can't really exercise independent judgment because such a thing is impossible. They're a political actress like, like anyone else in politics. And I said, given those two facts, the shifting constitutionalism and then the fact that judges are, are political actors just like everyone else, um, we shouldn't be surprised that the court uh, is such high stakes for the Democrats. And uh, I said, it makes sense that they would use uh, tactics uh, even more nasty than 
normal political fights, if you think about it, because they're fighting for a nine-member super legislature. So how do we resolve? I mean, right now, as we're talking, we're you know, a week or so past Kavanaugh. We're looking yep. at the November uh, midterms. Uh, I get asked all the time, will this stop? Will, is this going to get better or is this going to get worse? Right. Answer that question in terms of the principles and parameters you, you put in your essay. Sure. Yeah, I mean, we've been in a kind of anomalous time uh, in American politics over the last 30 or so years. We're trading political power at, at the top, meaning in the executive, and trading political power back and forth in the legislature. If you look at American history, the uh, you'll have, uh, instead of that gridlock and, and high partisanship, you have one of the two parties um, winning decisively and then dominating national politics for a generation or so. These are called realigning elections in the Tell, give us a couple of um, right. So um, the Republicans after the Civil War dominate national politics really until FDR with a few blips. Uh, so from you know yeah. <laughs> from yeah. the, the late 1860s until uh, until 1932, and then the Democrats, especially uh, in the legislature. Uh, really dominate national politics from 1932 until more or less the 90s. Um, and we've been stuck in this uh, back and forth gridlock ever since. So I think one of these, one well, of our had, two parties. Had, wouldn't yeah. 12 years count? Wouldn't 80 to 92 count? Yeah. Um, the Reagan revolution, as, as Reagan was yeah. was dubbed, although even Reagan in his um, farewell address says that he, he didn't quite affect the revolution that okay. he wanted. Okay. Um, that was I think that was probably close to a realigning election. Um, Reagan certainly shifted uh, our national politics. All right. I, I don't want to interrupt uh, to, to the right further. Yeah. But go, go ahead, please. So uh, one of our one of our parties has to win the argument about fundamentals and about their governing philosophy. And when they do that and maintain dominance over the course of of a few elections um, and even the course of a generation, the other side has to accommodate, recalibrate, moderate, even in some ways, as it tries to. Um, do its best to pick off uh, parts of the of the larger larger coalition that it's facing. So I think until the the GOP or the Democrats really win decisively, uh, the temperature of our politics is going to stay pretty high. Do you have a sense of uh, of who might do that? Who might prevail? Well, I mean, if you only got two choices, uh, so take a guess. Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> uh, my hope is that the Republicans will. I mean, I think I think if uh, it's gonna, it may have been started by Trump, and it won't be finished by him or continued by him. Of course, he only mm -hmm. has one more term. Um, but I think he showed the way. Um, I think if the Republicans can consolidate and expand a middle class broad electoral coalition, uh, I think they'd have a good chance of doing it. Um, and they're helped, I think, in a certain way because the uh, center of gravity of the Democratic Party seems to be shifting leftward, and uh, you know elections are won in the middle. So to the extent that the Democrats keep going left and the Republicans can find a way to stay on the center right or or consolidate on the center right, I think they'd have a pretty good chance. Ryan, did the Kavanaugh uh, phenomenon uh, help steer the Republicans more to the center right? It coalesced the party, that's a good didn't it? Right. Yeah. No. I, I mean, that's that's what I think we're seeing um, is some folks who were uh, maybe on the center right and, and not too comfortable with Trump realized that, um, you know, we are in a binary two party yeah. political system nationally and uh, you got to pick one or the other. And, and one looks a lot less bad than the other. I think that's what some people were realizing. Yeah. You quoted uh, in your essay, you quoted a, a frequent guest on this podcast, Michael Anton, 
his famous fight, 93 essay. What was the pen name? Publius Decius Moose. Yeah. I don't know why I can't remember that. I took five years of Latin in Catholic high school. <laughs> it just rolls right off the tongue. I took know. five years of Latin in four years of high school, and I can't remember it. But I also played football. got hit in the head, I guess. I don't know. But but he that was what he was saying, right? This is a Flight 93 election. Uh, that is, uh, uh, 16 was, and you, it's binary. you got to choose. Yeah, and... Uh... I mean, even Mike admitted that he was a little histrionic, but I think in retrospect, uh, he was quite right. I mean, if, given the given the tone and tenor of, of the leading edge of the Democratic Party that we really saw fully unmasked in the Kavanaugh hearings, I, I think Mike yeah. was not being that histrionic. Yeah. Does it mean, uh, and I know you're more comfortable the history, in the history as I am, uh, you're more comfortable talking about the past than the future, but I'm going to push you again. It doesn't necessarily mean that if the Democrats took the House this fall, that that would change the larger picture. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, um, presidents in general face headwinds in their first midterm. And the same, of course, will be true in, in a month or a little less than a month now. Um, but the uh, no, it would, you know, the real test would be uh, Trump surviving and then getting reelected or were he to resign or decide he'd had enough, uh, another president, Republican president. Um, I think, you know, for better or worse, in this day and age, uh, we have a very presidential or president-centric uh, national political system. Yeah. And so that's the real prize. Yeah. Just a couple more questions. We'll let you go. Um, sure. Do, do we begin to see, let's, let's, let's say the Republicans will prevail on this. Will we begin to see s- signs of this when... Uh, Democrats sat, start sounding a little more like Republicans. Oh well, look. After all, you do need borders. You know, this, you got to have a sovereign right. country. I mean, I remember uh, the debates about the welfare state. A lot of conservatives saying we got to get rid of the welfare state entirely. And then hearing all sorts of conservative uh, big thinkers, uh, Charles Cranhammer, who, who gave your your Churchill lecture one year, saying, "No, no, you're not going to get rid of the welfare state." Well, that was a, a recognition that part of that welfare state, at least, was here to stay. Is that fair? I mean, that was an accommodation. Use your word that. Republicans yeah. were, 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 were doing for because of democratic dominance. It, can the say, I'm trying to say, what, what would it sound like in reverse? Yeah, you're right. We right. need borders. And yeah, you shouldn't discriminate by race or ethnicity at all. Uh, and other noises like that. Yeah. And um, I think you're probably adopting some of the language about protecting manufacturing and reviving the middle class. I mean, nothing concentrates the mind like the prospect of political irrelevance. So I think uh, uh-huh. when you get beat enough on a certain set of issues, I think it's just natural that you would try to poach some of the other side's voters by speaking like them. So um, it'll be interesting. You know, the the modern Democratic Party is so ideologically far away from the Republican Party. Uh, another p- point of my piece is that we've sort of lost the middle, and at least at the national level, our parties have polarized uh, significantly. The distance between the the moderate liberal and the moderate Republican in the Congress has widened. Um, so they're pulling away from each yeah. other. So I don't venture to predict in what ways uh, the Democrats would have to moderate and um, accommodate should the Republicans gain some lasting uh, electoral advantage. But uh, it'll be interesting to watch. And and we should hope for it, really. That was part of my finishing point. At the end of the day, we're fellow citizens, uh, despite my rhetoric about a cold civil war, which I borrow from my colleague, Angelo Cotavilla. Uh, we are fellow citizens. Uh, we should allow politics to operate in normal fashion, and uh, we should make the best arguments and, and try to win the day, because the last thing we'd want would be a hot support, which yeah. would be a tragedy. Yeah, but 
that both sides have to participate. I remember, you know, I'm a philosopher by training that the Socratic yeah. dialogues, the dialogue requires two people, both committed to the Socratic conditions of candor, intelligence, and goodwill. But if you have people saying, we can't be civil until we take back the House or Senate, Mrs. Right. Clinton, or I, the more horrifying thing to me, and I'm sure to your colleagues at Claremont, did you see what Holder said the other day? Not not when we go, when they go low, we kick them. But given that there are now two illegitimate, arguably illegitimate justices on the court, people can justifiably, you know, question whether we have to obey its demands. What the heck right. is that, Ryan? Well, actually, yeah, it's, uh, well, I, it's some intemperate rhetoric uh, in the heat of the moment, I hope, hope so. Although the one silver hope. the one silver lining of that, of that might be, though, that uh, uh, we, we should maybe start regarding our, our Supreme Court uh, less like a super legislature and more like a coordinate branch. For that. Uh, some departmentalism would be a good thing uh, if we got it out of this, although it has to be something other than, than mere uh, of the courts. <laughs> I <ruling>. see. Very, <laughs> cl- very clever. That is, if the Democrats start saying what the Republicans have been saying for a long time. You know, <laughs> because now they've lost the court, right? Yeah. Okay. I want to just uh, end beer, but first of all, uh, I love the work you're doing. Your your leadership has been excellent. Uh, I wish I'd oh, been a fellow you. when you were in charge. Well, I guess it was a fellow <laughs> when the other guy was in charge, Mr. Kennedy, and then yeah. there was somebody else I can't remember. Anyway, uh, but uh, you guys are doing great things. Uh, we have a good, loyal listenership here. Anything you want to tell the audience about that they may want to sign on to or fly out to or go see or go listen to or tune into? Yeah, sure. I, I would encourage everyone to go to Claremont.org. Um, and go to our events page if you're out here on the West Coast. We have a we have an event on Thursday with uh, Michael Walsh on his book about uh, culture and and the West. And uh, we'll have our uh, we've got some programming out east as well in the coming month uh, or month or two in Washington. And uh, a, an event in New York on November sixth on uh, the anti-Americanism of of. Uh, the modern university, a subject uh, you know quite a bit about. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it's Claremont.org. Claremont.org, and I encourage everyone as well. Uh, you, you once called it the, you said Mrs. Bennett called it the, the big smart magazine. I the encourage big, everyone, if they don't already, to subscribe to the Claremont Review books. She actually called it the big smart thing. And I didn't know what she was talking <laughs> about. And it was what came because it came in the mail. You know that big smart thing that comes in the mail. Yes, yeah. <laughs> good nice of you to remember. I will tell her. All right, here's my question today, my, my laugh question yeah. of the day. And um, this is actually in the news. Uh, and the president was asked about it just today. I saw it as he was going to the helicopter. You said, Mr. President, that if Elizabeth Warren had Native American blood, you would give her a million dollars. Did you hear this news, Ryan? Yeah, I she, did. She I took did. a DNA test and she is between 132nd and one. Over 512th Indian, Native American. Yeah. Does he owe her a million bucks? Uh, no, I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> Considering the, given the, the broad statistics, I, I think that, what is it? The average American has more Native American blood than, than Mrs. Warren. So yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's uh, All right. the whole thing, you know, the, you know, people on some of our friends on social media are calling this a self own meaning she, to release such a preposterous result is, is basically to concede uh, the point of her critics. So I don't think that was a, a winning uh, self owned meaning. I love that. That's great. Yeah, cell phone. <laughs> it's like an own goal in, in soccer. You know, you score on yourself. I got you. I got you. Thank you, Ryan. Keep up your good work. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. Yes, sir. Huge fan of the show. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Well, I want to rant a little bit. That's what I call it. But I'm not too long. 
Uh, very interesting uh, what Ryan had to say. You need decisive political victory. Right. I'll tell you what. Uh, you know, I asked him if Democrats take back the House. Does that mean the Republicans are not on the rise? No, because you have these mid-course corrections often. Right. But if the Republicans keep the House, Democrats bar the door. Mm-hmm. Katie bar the door. I mean, that means Republicans are, you know, they're defying history in the midterm and, and win back that win the House again. So we'll see about that. He's probably right. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, in that regard, uh, and he was talking about people like some of the Never Trumpers surrendering. Uh, I read an article, and, and I, I'm going to do this now. I think it's a new thing for the show okay. called Must Read Articles. Good, a new feature on the and podcast. You're, and Got you're going to call them must-read articles, and you're going to put it up on the website, which I would have absolutely no idea how to do. Right. Well, I'm going to put it on our social media pages. That's so, what I meant. On Twitter. Yeah, that's what I and meant. And Facebook. And Some on Snapchat. No. Well, you don't have a Snapchat. Tinder. No, you don't have a Tinder. That's a dating app. No, I don't want from that. what I understand. I don't want that. Okay. No, just, just I'm just trying to throw out things to impress you that, as the guy said, at least I'm a contemporary. Right. I don't know what I'm talking about. But Bennett's a pretty hip guy. No, you are. You don't give yourself enough credit. New York Magazine, latest edition, Andrew Sullivan, liberal, says he's a Republican, but like Mike Bloomberg used to be, mm-hmm. uh, he's a liberal. So he goes back in this article, and uh, you, you sent it to me, and I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I want people to go look look for it. Uh, where will they look for it? They can go on your Facebook page, just like Bill Bennett, or follow you on Twitter at William J. Bennett. Right. Anyway, he's talking about the president whom he doesn't like. And he says, he talks about the president of the U.N. Mm-hmm. And he said the president got up there and he said, in less than two years, my administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country, America. So true. And Sullivan writes, and they laughed. As well they should have. It's a preposterous claim by a preposterous man. Why don't we laugh at him? Why does no interviewer simply burst into giggles when he unveils his latest absurd fib? Because there comes a point at which laughter begins to falter under the simple, steady weight of events. As I've noted before, this is Sullivan, Trump's record as a force of destruction is profound. But as the months tick by, there's a decent case that Trump's proactive accomplishments are beginning to add up. A huge tax cut, two Supreme Court justices, wholesale deregulation, renegotiation of NAFTA, isolation of Iran, and a broader reboot of bilateral nationalism on the world stage. Budget-busting tax cuts, he calls them, but major tax cuts. Mm -hmm. He goes on to point out all the ways in which Trump has, the president has, had a profound impact on government, that he's actually done a lot of stuff. And this is from a guy who really dislikes Trump. Right. This might connect up with what Ryan Williams was saying. The victory comes first in the realm of ideas. Okay. And then it goes to politics. Mm -hmm. Second article. And I would have had him on himself to do it, but we have him on very often, and that's our friend Mark Thiessen. Right. And I love this article. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. I hadn't. I love it. I just love the way Mark writes. He's such a, he's a tough customer, Mark. Do you know Mark grew up on the Upper East Side of New York? Both his parents were doctors. No, I did not know yeah. that. And he went to Vassar College. Wow, okay. Which was a girls' college. Excuse me, a women's college. Okay. <laughs> please, please don't fire me when I was in school. But it's co-ed now. Donald Trump may be remembered as the most honest president in modern American history. Don't get me wrong. This is Thiessen. Okay. Trump lies all the time. <laughs> all the time. 
He said that he enacted the biggest tax cuts and reforms in American history. Actually, they're the eighth largest. And he also said our economy is the strongest it's ever been in the history of our country. One day that may be true, Thiessen writes, but not yet. Well, part of what Trump's doing is a New York thing. Everything is the biggest and the best and bigly, and Mm -hmm. that's Trump. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the real barometer of presidential truthfulness, keeping promises, Trump is a paragon of honesty. Not the little lies, the big truths. Mm -hmm. For better or worse, since taking office, Trump has done exactly what he promised he would do. Kept his promise to move the embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Promised to crush and destroy ISIS. Promised to impose a travel ban on countries that he saw as posing a terrorist threat. By that ban was finally upheld by the Supreme Court. Promised to punish Syria if it used chemical weapons. Pledged to nominate Supreme Court justices who were conservative in the mold of Justice Antonin Scalia. Having lunch with his son tomorrow, by the way. Oh, can I used to work for me. Yeah, Gene Eugene Scalia. All right. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> Gene Scalia was down at the University of Virginia just before he took a job with me. Uh-huh. Because his dad was being honored. He was teaching at the law school of Virginia, Nathan and Scalia. And young Gene, who's the oldest of the Scalia's six children, was sitting next to the president of the university. He said, well, what do you do? He said, well, I'm moving to Washington. I'm taking a job in speech writing. And the president of the university said, well, good luck. And uh, he said, I just hope to heck it's not for that awful Mr. Bennett. Really? Yeah. Anyway, back to Thiessen. Trump also pledged to fill the federal appellate courts with young conservative judges. So far, he's had Senate confirmed 29 of them. He vowed to pass historic tax reforms, first major overhaul of the tax code. He vowed an unprecedented regulatory rollback. He promised to cancel Barack Obama's clean power plan, promised to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, promised he would approve the Keystone XL and Dakota Access Pipelines, and open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to exploration. He kept his promise to withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He committed to renegotiating NAFTA and the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement, and recently signed new deals with Mexico, Canada, and South Korea. He said he was going to impose tariffs on China, and he has. He promised historic increases in defense spending and delivered promised to bring back manufacturing jobs and they're growing at the fastest rate in more than two decades he pledged to sign right to try legislation which gives dying americans access to experimental treatments and he did Thiessen ends whether one agrees or disagrees is not the point when trump says he will do something you can take it to the bank convincing argument right pretty daggone yeah. good i think i got nothing to add to that i'm just gonna <laughs> you do my rant in the, in the voice and words of uh, Mark Deason. Really yeah. well done. Pretty impressive. V- really impressive. Let's end with, uh, I won't ask you the Elizabeth Warren question, because I think I know what you'll say. Okay, thank you. Between 132nd and 1512. <laughs> I bet you got that much. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, no, I've got way more than that. Yeah, absolutely. My mother's mother, but yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Trump owe you a million dollars? No, he never got that. Yeah, no, he, yeah, no, we never discussed it. All right, so I, I'm always interested in the people how they spend their time. And fall Saturdays, it's not hard to know how I spend my time. Right. Watching football on TV. Mm-hmm. I was, however, excuse the verb, trumped. <laughs> This Saturday, I was at a wedding, which was fine. Right. But where were you? Tell us about what time you got up and what you did. Oh, so I I got up at 4 o'clock in the morning 
to hit the road uh, to head to Columbus, Ohio. Oh, I know what's out there. Yeah, the Ohio State Buckeyes had a game against uh, the, the Ohio the Ohio State. Yeah, against uh, Minnesota Golden uh, Golden Gophers. And uh, yeah, so uh, I have a cousin uh, out there related through marriage who has a neighbor who's a season ticket holder because she works for the university, and uh, they're diehard fans. But there are a couple of games, a handful every year that she may not go to for other reasons, whether it's travel and things like this. This happened to be one of the games. So the cousin who knows that I'm a huge college football fan says, hey, you want to come up here? Ohio State, Minnesota, I've got an extra ticket. I said, of course, absolutely. She said, well, what are the details? Don't worry about the details. Meet me at 10 o'clock at the Holiday Inn in Columbus, uh, in, in, uh, God, in Grove City, uh, and, and I'll, I'll be there at 1030 in the morning. <laughs> and so I drive up 4 o'clock in the morning. I get Not there by yourself. Oh, I was by myself. Oh, and your wife didn't go. No, no. Well, here's so she was. So she was. Oh, that's to, right. She thought you were crazy. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So she was going. She was going to come up, uh, but as it turns out, she sings at this. Well, you know, she sings. So she sings at some Washington performing arts yeah. chorus or something. So she had a rehearsal for performance. Would she have gone if she didn't have a rehearsal? She would have, but she wouldn't have gone to the game. Would she have gotten up at four o'clock in the morning to drive to Columbus to see the? Ohio she would have State? gotten up at four o'clock in the morning to sleep in the car as I drove to Columbus, <laughs> and then also Manny you had, had one Coke and one Munchable, right? right exactly, yeah. and Manny had a football game. And so your son, yeah, he scored four touchdowns. He scored, so that makes it seventeen touchdowns on the season. Seventeen touchdowns in five games. You maybe missed the more important game, you know. One would argue, yes. Arguably, Some would argue, right. yeah. He'll be, he'll be there for the next 17 days. <laughs> exactly. And so, uh, yeah, so she ended up, so the plan was for her to go. And me and the cousin, we were going to go to the game, and she was going to stay there with her aunts, and we'd come back and meet them for dinner. But uh, she said she couldn't make it because of that. And I said, well, you know that I'm going to go to this game still. And so <laughs> I got up, met the cousin. We went to uh, the game. I had a great time. Beautiful field. The horse. Huge, and right? just the atmosphere is great. I mean, folks are out there having, you know, fun. And tailgating, and you know, just did you see? Thing. Tell the truth, Cindy. Not, not that they're the majority, but did you see any obnoxious of the Ohio State fans? Oh yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to run into one who's not. And so, I mean, <laughs> the family members who I met going up there are obnoxious Ohio yeah, okay. State fans. And so, <laughs> they know they've been pushed to the brink. I mean, you know. Yeah. Well, no, it, it, it's interesting, you know. And so, uh, it's funny because after the game, everyone. Whether they went to the game or not, still dressed in the Ohio State red. Yeah, sure. Go to any restaurant, everyone's still sure. dressed up. It's all they're talking about. Sure. You know, it's such a big deal. So it was a, it was a great time. And then got a couple hours of sleep at the Holiday Inn and then hit the road back here to D.C. I have two. Fo- That's very impressive. Yeah. I admire you. My hat's off. To you. Oh, it's 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 a quick turnaround situation when you can do that. I have two football things to say, and then one last thing. We're done. My first thing to say is LSU. Right. Watch right. them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they beat Georgia. Georgia's ranked number two. Yeah. And, and and manhandled Georgia, by the way. Made it look easy. Number number two thing to say is uh, Alabama's visiting LSU in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Watch that game. But don't bet LSU. No, I wouldn't. I would not bet. Now, Tua uh, uh, is supposed to yeah. take this week yeah. off, yeah. I think, because of his knee. Well, they have, they have a backup quarterback. Who won a national championship, by the way. <laughs> is this the only time that the backup quarterback is a guy who won a national championship? I don't know. I'll have to take a look. But I, but the, certainly Jalen Hurts is able to beat Tennessee. I think it's Tennessee this upcoming weekend. So he's able to beat Tennessee, I'm sure. He's a great quarterback. Yeah. He could start anywhere else in the country, I'm sure. So a friend of mine who's actually pretty 
well known. I won't say his name because he may not be able to stand it from his classmates. Is a big Notre Dame fan. As you know, I am not. Right. Yeah, you're not at all. Right. And um, so I get in trouble with sure Notre why, Dame. But, yeah. uh, well, that's a complicated Catholic thing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Liberal University, okay. honorary degree to Obama, you okay. know, most pro-abortion president in history, some other things. Okay. You know. Also, just the, the hype is too much for me. Anyway, it. it is. Uh, he's a big Notre Dame fan. I give him they got an unbeaten record. They come close, though. Several teams mm-hmm. have come close. Mm-hmm. And they are lucky. There is the luck of the Irish. But I said to him, I said, you're going to go unbeaten? He said, I hope not. I said, wait, you're a diehard fan. Why do you hope not? He said, I hope we get one loss. We get invited to some nice citrus bowl or some game in Southern California or something. Mm-hmm. So if we go unbeaten, we'll be number four. And we'll have to play Alabama and we'll lose by 35 points. Yeah, in the first, yeah you're right. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> you remember the what the last time? Remember that nastiness? Yeah. You remember oh, the signs? I remember. I remember. Notre Dame, yeah. and Alabama, the Notre Dame people came and said, it's the Golden Domers versus the Mobile Homers. Yeah, yeah. I remember they, that. They got their come up. <laughs> Anyway, I thought that was very funny. He wants to go, you know, eleven and one, and you know, and go to some secondary yeah, bowl. Yeah. Well, you got a chance to win where you're not playing Alabama. Anyway, and watch my watch my Longhorns are number seven now. They're looking good. Beat Alabama. We didn't talk about that last week. They beat Oklahoma. They, they, you know, we didn't. Uh, the reason I want to talk about it is I could, couldn't breathe for a day after that because they were up by twenty-one points. Right. And then go, let Oklahoma tie it. So went to a conference of state policy network people, conservative think tanks and mm-hmm. others in Salt Lake. I'm at the airport. This guy comes up to me. We're talking. So great admirer yours. He said, I got a kick out of that movie, that uh, Disney movie about you. Does this ring Disney a bell? Disney movie about you? Yes. Yeah, this ring a bell? No. Ask our other friends and colleagues. I said, Disney movie about me? He said, yeah, it was one of their full length uh, cartoon movies. I said, what was it called? So it was called Recess. Recess. And, and in it, it's about kids in school. Mm-hmm. And they have a really mean principal whose name is Wilhelm Benedict. <laughs> yes. <laughs> look it up. Folks, look it up. Go online. Wilhelm Benedict. And he wants to cancel re- recess. Well, that's not you. No, but it's I remember the, 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 the TV series. Yeah, too. Right. I remember that one. Uh-huh. It's a spinoff. Okay. Of the movie. But no, I'm not mean and horrible, but that's what the liberals think I am. <laughs> So Wilhelm Benedict wants to cancel research by by getting something to block the sun. That's me. Oh, right. Block the sun so the kids can't go out and have recess. Well, they they don't know. And just make they them do math. They clearly they don't know you. You aren't anti recess. Um, you want? I've have had fun once or twice in my life. I know. <laughs> the only good thing about this is you know who my voice is. Who's that? The voice of Wilhelm Benedict. Who would that be? James Woods. Ah, okay. One of, one of the two, or is it three, conservatives in Hollywood? Yeah, yeah. All right. So there you go. Not bad. Okay, I think we've I think we've done enough damage for today, Claude. <laughs> You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. Well, folks, that does it for today. Catch up on previous episodes of this show. Go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. I still have trouble with that expression. Yeah. Like me, I'm not like me. It means you know me. But anyway, just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. One more time, we do welcome emails. We often read them 
on the show. How do people send me an email? Absolutely. What do they do? Just BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. Just send us the email. BillBennettPodcast at gmail. I may try that myself. Yeah, you can send yourself. You can send the show an email. Excellent show, Mr. Bennett. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we get enough of that. You we get, get you. We got you. We got you. We got you. <laughs> 